Welcome to First Baptist Church. You're listening to the teaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead. Check us out on the internet at fbcboron.org. Have you guys ever walked into a room where other people are talking and you kind of like stumble in the middle of a conversation and you're like, what are we talking about? Right? Are they talking about me? Are they talking about somebody else? Are they talking about somebody I know? Are they talking about something that I know about? And as the conversation continues, you get a, begin to get a sense of what the subject might be, but you don't want to jump in too fast because you want to, don't want to look like a fool because you're not sure if you've actually you know, got the facts straight you know, and you're not sure you know, if, if you're missing something important. Well, if you missed the first two parts of this, uh, this series so far, it's kind of like that, right? Um, you know, you're, you're really kind of coming in the middle of a, of a conversation, Right, because we're in a three-part uh, series, and because of that, that means the conversation is actually ongoing. Which means if you miss the first two parts, you're probably gonna be like, "Huh? Like, you know, what are we talking about here?" But don't worry. All right, fear not. Uh, I'm gonna help you get all caught up to where we are, and uh, I can help you do that in two ways. Number one, in just a minute, I'm gonna give you a real quick highlight review of where we've been in the last couple of weeks. We're just gonna we're gonna hit the high points. Not gonna get in too much detail. But that way you're not completely lost uh, if you've not been here. Um, And uh, number two, we've already uploaded all the messages to this series uh, to our church website, fbcboron.org, or our SoundCloud page. And so you can either go to that place or listen to it uh, and listen to it online, or you can download our our app on on your smartphone. The instructions for that are in, in your bulletin. But in either case, you now have the ability to get caught up. And that way you can actually fully engage in this conversation. Um, but uh, we're going to continue on part three. And uh, as we kicked off this series in week one, we started this series with an understanding that this series would be broken down into two basic components. Number one, we're going to talk about what tempt- temptation is from a theological perspective in the first couple of weeks. Right? And then, number two, we would talk about temptation from a practical perspective in the last few weeks of this series. And so, in essence, we would begin this series by exploring from a theological perspective what temptation actually is, how it works, and how it affects us in our lives. And, and so we, we opened up this series in week one with a message titled, um, Kill or Be Killed. And in that message, we discovered that temptation actually is a trial. Temptation, is, in some sense, is a test. And, and that temptation, like, um, like all other trials, uh, has the potential to prove in our lives or disprove our faith. As James said, that count it all joy, my brothers, when you face various trials and temptations, uh, because the testing of your faith will produce in you spiritual maturity, and that a man who stands under the test will be blessed. He's going to be blessed because enduring trials proves that he loves God. That's a paraphrase of the main text of that series. Temptation is a trial, and like all other trials, it has a tendency to prove our faith. And so in week one, we talked about the fact that temptation is not something that is external to us, right? It is actually something that's internal. It begins internally. James says that we are tempted because of our own desires and they lead us away and entice us. Temptation has its roots in our own desires. We are tempted because God has given our des- given us desires for things like security and sex and food and friendship and happiness, right? But those desires have become twisted and distorted to the point that these desires can actually lead us away from God. Now, there are three main points 
that we came away with in week one. Number one, right? People don't fall into sin. They just don't fall into sin, right? Sin actually isn't something, some random, you know, event that occurs in your life. It actually begins somewhere. There's a process to sin. It begins with our desires, right? And our desires allow a seed to get planted. And then when, once sin is conceived, it grows and becomes full grown. And number two, since sin becomes full grown, it has catastrophic costs uh, to us. James says that sin produces death in our lives. And that death can be multiple forms. It can certainly be spiritual death for an unbeliever. Someone who doesn't trust in Jesus Christ will ultimately face spiritual death because of their sin. But it can also cause physical death. And we know people who have died as a result of sin in their lives. It can also cause financial death and, and relational death. Sin can cause the death of marriages and families and opportunities and careers and even whole communities and even whole countries and nations can die a death because of sin. Sin can cause the death of all kinds of things in all kinds of areas of our lives. And then number three, since sin has catastrophic consequences to it, and since sin begins really in, in the earliest stages in our own desires, we must be willing to kill sin in its infancy, the, the temptation stage. As John Owen said, be killing sin or sin be killing you. Well, the best place to kill sin is at the desire stage before it can grow up and actually do harm to our lives. And then last week, building off of what we learned uh, and given the fact that sin is so destructive, uh, we, took, we looked at the Bible and we discovered that we really don't have an excuse um, not to fight temptation. Right? Sin and those underlying uh, desires, it caused sin. We don't have an excuse not to do battle with those things. In fact, we, dis- we discovered five reasons why we don't have an excuse. Number one, we have a clear example to learn from in the Bible. Paul tells us that sins, the sins of Israel and their consequences were recorded in the word of God to teach us and to instruct us and to give us direction so that we can learn from them. The word of God is there so that we can learn from those who've gone before us what not to do and how to avoid those temptations. Number two, all temptation, Paul says, is common to man. Paul makes it clear that anything that we face, somebody else has already faced. It's common to mankind, which means that there are people out there who have overcome what you are struggling to overcome. And the third reason that uh, we don't have an excuse is God is faithful. The reason why we can overcome temptation in the first place isn't us. It's not you. It is God. God is the reason why you can overcome temptation. God is faithful. In fact, number four says, God will not allow you to be tempted beyond your ability to withstand the temptation. God will not allow you to be tempted beyond your strength. That's a promise from God. Because God, number five, provides a way out. God always provides a way to escape the temptations that you are facing. And so the reality is we don't have an excuse. It's destructive and we don't have an excuse. In fact, we can summarize everything we've talked about so far in basically three main points. Number one, temptation leads to sin. That sin has a cost to it. Number two, temptation is anything I desire more than God. And number three... God is faithful to help me to move, to help me to overcome any and all temptations in my life. That's the three basic points that we've arrived at in the first two parts of this series, right? That's where we've been. And and, and now that we've looked at temptation from this theological perspective, and we've kind of talked about what it is and how it affects us, this week we're going to begin to talk about how we can actually be proactive 
and how we can apply the, the word of God to our lives and fight sin. How can I overcome the, the temptation in my life is the question that we're going to begin to answer this week. This week we're going we're gonna to get real practical and we're going to begin talking about how you and I can actively but intentionally uh, work to overcome those internal desires that tempt us and lead us to sin. We're going to begin uh, this week to look at the practical ways to apply the word of God to our lives so that you and I can have the tools that we need to overcome the schemes of our enemy, the devil, and the power that temptation seems to hold over us. And the place where we're going to begin this morning is with the two important words. And the words are these, submit and resist. Submit and resist. Now, these are two really important words that are found in verse 7 of our text today. And these words really are the exact opposite of one another. These two words are actually diametrically opposed to one another. They, they, they convey two opposite and extreme ideas. All right? But these two words right here, both of these words, you and I need to apply to our lives simultaneously. Now, now, let me explain. The Greek word for submit is this word right here. It's hupotasso. Hupotasso. Believe me, I have to practice every Sunday morning to get that right, right? Hupotasso. And what this means is that there's that you, what you're going to do is you're going to put yourself in line under someone else. It means to come under someone's authority. It means to subject yourself to someone else. Militarily, it means to get behind a leader and then to follow orders. It means to completely subject yourself to the one who's in authority over you. That's what it means to submit or hupotasso, right? Now, the other word, on, um, resist, is this word right here pronounced um, enthestemi, enthestemi. Right? And this word, enthesemi, carries with the idea of taking a stand. It's the exact opposite of submitting. Right? It is standing against something. It is to resist something. It is to push back. It's the idea that something comes against you and you do not submit. Okay? And you don't give in. And, and you do not just stand still, but you are actively leaning in, pushing back. You resist. You don't give in. Right? It's, it's the opposite of submitting. Now, now a good illustration... Of, of what we're talking about here uh, with, with both of these words is, in fact, you know, the military. Because in the military, you see both these principles at work at the same time. In fact, in the first century, the Roman army, this, it was, they were actually a really great illustration of this point. You see, the Roman army was very successful in the way that uh, it, it conquered nations because of the way that it applied these two ideas. You see, the Roman soldiers completely submitted to their commanders, right? Their lives actually depended upon that, that they submit to the commanders above them. So if their commander said to move to the right, they move to the right. If their commander said move to the left, they move to the left. If their commander said to take up your shield and form a phalanx, then that's what they did. The Roman soldiers submitted to their commanders. They did exactly what they were told to do. They, they came into a line under the authority of their commanders. And at the same time, though, they resisted their enemies. Roman soldiers, when they, when, they, when they went to battle, they stood their ground. That was part of the strategy. They would line up shield to shield, and they would lean forward and dig in their cleats, right? And they would hold their ground against the, en against the enemy as their enemy would crash into them like a wall. And they would stand, and they would physically resist them. They would stand their ground. And so simultaneously... They were submitting to their commanders 
And at the same time, they were resisting their enemies. Submit and resist. Now, these two words have opposite meanings. They have opposite identities. But these are the two words that you and I need to apply to our own lives at the same time. We need to both submit and resist at the same time. Time. And even though that we're not Roman soldiers and we're not going into battle with sheer shields and, and swords and spears, we still need to be ready to submit and resist, right? And, and, if, if we're, and, and understand, if we learn to do this, if we actually apply these things to our lives, something incredible will happen, right? In fact, James tells us that if you will submit and resist, the devil will flee, right? The devil will leave you. He will flee. Now, I don't know about you, but the prospect of anything coming into my life that would make the devil flee from me, that gets my attention, right? I mean, it's, it's something that I could actually get a little bit excited about because I don't know about you. I, I want the devil to flee from me, right? I, I'm, I'm actually, I want him to leave me alone. <laughs> I, I, want, I, I want, want him, I want to give him a really good reason to run away from me. I'm tired of him coming against me. I'm tired of, of him, you know, trying to lead me astray. I'm tired of the stupid things that he tries to tempt me with. I'm tired of him trying to appeal to my desires. I'm tired of him prowling around like a roaring lion, like looking for someone to devour. I want him to flee from me. I want him to turn and run. How about you? Well, that's what James says. If we will submit and we will resist, the devil will flee. And that's what we're going to talk about. We're going to talk about submitting and resisting and causing the devil to flee from us. Now, look with me again at James chapter 4. We're going to begin in verse 1. And, um, and, and before we jump too far in, let me just remind you the context. This is a book that, that James had written. Uh, and this is James, the brother of Jesus. And this is probably the first New Testament book that was written. And it was written to give Christians practical instructions on how to live their lives as Christians. How, how to follow Jesus. Practical instructions. And what you have to understand is the Christians at that time in the first century, though different in, in, in many ways with their culture, they really weren't that different from us in other respects like temptation. As Paul says, all sin is common to man. The people in the first century struggled with the same kinds of issues that we struggle with. They struggle with pride and idolatry and sexual immorality and greed and gossip and faithlessness. Okay? They needed the same kinds of things that we need. They needed grace. They needed mercy. They needed God's provision. They needed wisdom from on high. Right? And so... The practical advice that James gives in this letter is not only helpful for those people in the first century, it's helpful and applicable to our lives today, especially in the advice that he gives to help us to overcome temptation, which we find in chapter number four. So let's look at chapter four, beginning in verse one, James says, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Right? He's asking, what's causing the issues between you and your fellow Christians, between brothers and sisters in Christ? What is at the roots of this conflict? What is, is causing you, you know, uh, to sin? What's, it's the, what's at the heart of this sin? And then he asks, is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? Notice this, okay? Because James, early on, as we talked about, right, in, in the first week, said that we are tempted when we are led away by our desires, right? And, and when our desires conceive, they, they bring forth sin, right? And then in this text, he asks, why do you fight, 
right? Well, it's, it's the same reason. Is it because your passions or your desires, right, in you, those desires are at war with you. Now think about this because this helps us to get a clear picture of how our desires can cause all of us to stumble, right? How our desires can lead us to sin. He says your passions, your desires are at war with, within you or within us. There's a battle inside of each one of us. We, are, we, we have conflicting desires in all of us. In fact, Paul talks about this in Galatians chapter 5, verse 17. He says, For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit. And the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. And, 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 they're, and these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing things you want to do. Okay, I think we've all experienced this before, right? I have a desire, really sincere desire to honor God with everything that I do and all that I say. But sometimes at the same time, I have the desire, right, to be a real big jerk to the telemarketers on the phone, right? Those are conflicting desires. Those desires are at war with each other. And James asks, why do you sin? Why do you fight with your brothers and sisters? Well, because you, there's this war inside of you. Your desires and your passions are at war with one another. And because of that, there are consequences to that. James says, and he continues on and says in chapter 2, I mean, I mean verse 2, he says, You desire, you want something, and you do not have, so you murder. Now, this is a strong statement here, Right? But he's making a point. There's a consequence, right? There's a consequence to sin. Now, we don't always literally murder people, but there are consequences of, of the sin that gets full grown in us. It's death, right? And he's saying that your desires are causing you to sin in a way that produces catastrophic results in your life and the lives of other people. Because you are not, you might not physically murder someone, but you certainly can murder your relationships. You can certainly murder, you know, your, your friendships because of sin. I mean, think about this. Have you ever destroyed a friendship over something that you really, really wanted? Have you ever lost a friendship because you wanted something so badly it caused you to do things, uh, you know, or behave in such a way that destroyed that relationship? It happens all the time. I mean, parents want to live their lives vicariously through their children as they play sports and they destroy the relationships with their kids. Couples have differing uh, desires and expectations of their relationship and they destroy their marriage because neither one of them are getting what they want. Or how about the employee who didn't get the raise he wanted or the recognition he wanted? So he wanted, you know, wanted nothing more to do with, with where he was working. And so he ends up destroying his own job by quitting or doing something stupid and ruining his career entirely. James often says, I mean, James says that oftentimes our desires, they well up inside of us, right? And it causes us to sin in such a way that it brings death, which is the natural outworking of sin and temptation. James continues and says, you covet, right? And cannot obtain. So you fight and quarrel. You want something, but you can't get it, Right? You want it, but you can't get it, so you allow your desire to become sinful. And then he says, you do not have because you do not ask. You do not ask. I mean, you do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. Now, what's he saying here? He's saying that, that most of the time when people want something, they forget to ask the one who would actually has the ability to give it to them, right? They forget to ask the one who provides all things. Remember, James has said in his letter, 
Every good and perfect gift comes from where? From God, from the Father of lights. He says, you don't, you don't have because you don't ask God, right? He's the one who actually gives the gifts, right? And then when you do figure it out and when you do ask God, you're not asking him with the right motivation. You're asking him with the wrong motivation. You ask, you, you ask for the things that you want not to glorify God in your life, but instead you ask to satisfy your broken desires. Now, this is really getting at the heart of the issue because, because look what he says next. He says, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend with the world makes an enemy of God. Or do you suppose that no purpose, do you suppose it is no purpose that scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? I want you to listen to the words that he's using here. In this text, James uses the words like adulterous and jealously and friendship and enemy. Now, we could certainly spend the next few weeks on this particular set of texts alone. But there's something in these things, in these words that you need to see. The reason why James uses words like adulterous and jealous and and enemy and friend is because because these are relationship words. They have to do with relationships. And that's the heart of the matter that James is trying to communicate here is about our relationship with God. Here's the thing that you need to hear. If there's anything else that you remember today, this is the thing that you want to remember. All right. The power that temptation has over you, the power that desire has over you is directly related to the kind of relationship you have with God. The power that temptation has over you, the power that desires have over you is directly related to the kind of relationship you have with God. You have to understand this. The roots of temptation is your desires. The roots of overcoming temptation is also your desire. Remember what we said last week. Temptation is anything you desire more than God, which means if you desire God more than anything else, temptation loses its power in your life. You see, this is a war for your affections. This is a war for your, your affections. What is, what is your supreme desire? What is it that you love the most? All right. If it's God, then you will not be tempted. But if it's, but if it's not God, temptation will rule over you. If you're, if you desire anything more than God, you are adulterous is what he's saying. Now, I'm not saying that you're literally committing adultery with your spouse or against your spouse. But I mean, but, but think about this. What does is, what is adultery actually imply? What's the implication to that? Adultery implies that you are in a relationship with someone who deserves your attention, your affection, and your devotion. Right? But you then give those things to someone else. That's adultery. We owe allegiance and love and devotion and affection for, we owe that to someone, but we end up giving it to someone else who doesn't even deserve those things. That's adultery. That is what sin is. That's what temptation is. You're taking your love and your attention and your affection and you're withholding those things from God and you're giving those things to something or someone else who absolutely has no right to those things. That is the that, that, that is, is precisely what, what Paul is talking about in Romans chapter 1, beginning in verse 18. He says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. 
For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking and and their foolish hearts became darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. And here's the important part. And exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man, birds, animals, and creeping things or idols. Mankind tends to exchange or trade in God for things that God created, right? Mankind tends to desire the things of creation rather than the creator himself. We tend to want the gifts rather than the gift giver, right? That is the heart of temptation. That is the heart of adultery itself. When our desire for other things overpowers our desire for God, you see, God has given us absolutely the desire to be secure, okay? It's natural to desire that, 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 that you know, for us to, to feel security. There's nothing wrong with wanting to feel secure in your home. There's nothing wrong that want to want to feel financially secure. But when that desire causes us not to honor God, right, with our increase, but instead causes us to hoard what we have, that is sin, Right? It's not a sin to want to save money to be able to take care of our future needs. Right? It's not a sin to want nice things or, or to even have nice things. But when that desire for security, the desire to have nice things drives us towards hoarding right, or to coveting other things, then that desire has grown greater than our desire for God himself. It's the same, it's the same with sex. Right? It's the same with how we use our time. In fact, if you desire, if your desire to be entertained all the time, right, leaves you with no time to spend with God, you have a problem, right? Now, I'm not saying that you need to read your Bible 24 hours a day and, and spend every waking second talking to God, right? And that you, that you have to be in church, you know, five days a week. I'm not saying that, right? What I'm saying Is that anything you desire more than God becomes an idol in your life. It is the temptation that's in your life. And these things don't always have to be bad things. You can make idols of anything. You can make idols of your work. You can make idols. I know I did. You can make idols of your work. You can make idols of your children. You can make idols of your relationships. You can make idols of your public image. You can make idols of of even your good deeds that you do for other people because of the motivation that you have isn't even the right motivation to have, right? In fact, we know people who who serve and do good things for other people, not because it's the right thing to do, but because of what they end up getting out of it as a result. It's not for the glory of God. It's for their personal gratification that they do those things. Some people do things because they want people to think well of them. Some people do those things because they want to be recognized. Some people do those things because, because, um, because it's how they built their identity, right? Anything and, you know, even good things can become idols in our lives. But James says, you sin because you're not getting what you desire. And you're not getting what you desire because you don't ask God. Right? And when you do ask God, you're not asking with the right motivation, you know, which, which is to glorify God. You're asking with the wrong motivation, which is to feed your selfish, idolatrous desires. You want the objects of your desire more than you want God. You want friendship with the world and what the world has to offer rather than friendship with the one who created the world. 
You see, it's not a matter of having desires. Because God is the one that gave us our desires. It's not a matter that we like things in the world. God created the world. And he created it to be experienced and to be enjoyed. Right? Remember, every good and perfect gift comes from above. So this is not the issue. The issue is our temptations, our sins grow inside of us as our affections for those things grow and outgrow our affections for God. That is the issue. James says, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Now, what James is saying here is God opposes those people who become prideful. And he exalts those who are humble. Well, who are the proud then? Well, the proud are those who make idols of their desires. The proud are those who choose to fulfill their own desires rather than to honor God. The proud are those who put themselves and their desires first before God. Because isn't that really what sin is in the first place? You're putting yourself above God. In fact, isn't that where sin began itself? Genesis chapter 2, right? The serpent, beginning in verse 1, said to Eve, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, You may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not certainly die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight for the eyes, and that the tree was to be, what? Desired to make one wise. She looked, but she took of its fruit and ate. And then she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. You have to understand, Eve desired to be like God. That's what the enemy appealed to. Eve's desire was to be like God, and that desire exceeded her desire to honor God. You see, all sin has its roots in our own desires. And when our desires become about us, and instead of God, we become proud. We become guilty of pride. Because that's what pride is. Pride is us elevating ourselves above God. We put ourselves first. We put our earthly desires first. It's about us and our desires rather than God and his glory. Well, well, God opposes that. It's what he says. God opposes the proud. He's in opposition to you and I elevating ourselves above above God. He's opposed to ourselves... uh, Elevating our desires above him and his glory. God opposes those whose affections for things are greater than their affections for him. God opposes the proud and he gives grace to the humble. Well, who are the humble? Well, the humble are those who, who seek God and his glory. Those that who desire God more than they desire other things. Those who satisfy themselves in God rather than satisfying themselves in their desires. Those who worship God for who he is and who give thanks to him for all he has done. And those who, whose greatest desire is to actually be near him. Those are the humble. Well, does that mean that those people don't want security? No. It's just they will worship the one who ultimately makes us secure. Right? They will worship the one that makes us secure and not the material things that give us the empty promise of security. 
Does that mean that they don't desire sex? No, it just means that they will, they will seek to satisfy that desire in a way that's honoring to God. Right? They will try to satisfy that desire in a way that God has prescribed in the Bible. And whether we'd like to admit it or not, whether it's popular or not, the truth is God has a clear prescription of how humans are to satisfy that desire. And that desire is to be satisfied between a man and a woman who are married to each other and every other way that that's that's satisfied is outside of that and it is sin god opposes the proud and is and the self-seeking god opposes the proud and the self-seeking but he gives grace to the humble and the god seeking that's what james is saying god opposes those who put themselves above god and he gives grace to those who put god above everything else which by the way is how we actually overcome Sin and temptation is to put God first. In fact, James gets real practical and he tells us how to to not be proud and how to actually humble ourselves. He says, submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. There it is. There is how we apply these two words to our lives. Here's how we humble ourselves. Here's how we resist temptation. Here's how we put our desires in check. We are to submit to God and resist the devil. And if we will do that, the devil then will flee from us. This is the most practical advice that you're ever going to get when it comes to fighting sin. Submit to God. Resist the devil. Now that might sound like, yeah, I know that. Well... We have to remind ourselves of that, right? As we are submitting, right? As we said before, submitting gives a sense that we come into line with. We put ourselves under, coming under someone's authority. It's the idea that our entire life, our entire life, all our thoughts and actions, all of our hopes and dreams, all of those things we take and we submit to God. We come under his complete and total authority, We say, yes, Lord, you are the king. You are the boss. You are the leader. What you say goes. What you command gets done, right? That's what it means to submit. So when God says, don't gossip, don't gossip. When God says, guard your heart, guard your heart. When he says to forgive, do it, even though it's hard. When God says, love your enemies, you got to do that too. That's what submission to God is. You submit your entire life under God's authority. Now, this is something that all of us, I think, have a tendency to struggle with at least a little bit. Because I think most of us want to submit on some level. We just don't want to submit all the way. Because like, I think we, growing up in this individualistic kind of culture, we look at our lives as these compartmentalized existence. Over here, I'm a father. Over here, I'm an employee. Over here, I'm a Christian. Over here, I'm that crazy person who can't control my emotions every time I get cut off on the highway. We think our lives are made of these disconnected little boxes and compartments and parts, right? And we think that when we submit to God, it's because we come to church once in a while, we read our Bibles a little bit, and then we call ourselves Christians, even though that the other parts of our lives, we're not, you know, submitting. We're indulging in those other desires, and, and we're ignoring the commands and the directives that God gives us. We think that we're following God, and we think we're submitting to Him, because that's the sum total of our Christian experience. But submitting to God is when you submit your entire life to God. That is your, your, your life that you live at work, 
Okay, that is the life that you have at home. That is the life that you have when you're around your family and your good friends, when everybody else is partying hard and the, and the things get rowdy, right? We need to submit our life at school. We need to live, submit our life as parents. We need to submit our life as American citizens. We need to live, submit our life that we live you know, secretly on the internet. We need to submit every part of our life under the authority of God. We need to submit to his control, not just part, but all. And then we need to resist the devil. Make no mistake. We live in a culture that kind of celebrates temptation and sin a little bit, right? It winks at it. It laughs at it, you know? It, it, it makes it seem like it's fun. But the devil is our enemy. The Bible tells us that, that we're, we're at war with him, okay? He roams around like a, pro, uh, like a roaring lion. He prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour, right? He's the one that we're engaged in spiritual warfare with. He's the one that we're supposed to <clears throat> put on the full armor of God for. You know, that we take up that shield, extinguishes fiery darts. He comes against us. The Bible says he comes to steal, kill, and destroy. He comes to tempt us and to draw us away into sin. He comes to play on our desires. He wants us to be lured away and enticed by those desires. We are to resist him. We're told, resist him. Stand against him. Push back against him. Do not allow him to advance. Don't give him a foothold, we're told. Right? We're to oppose him. It is, it's this picture of, an, of this opposing army crashing against our shield as we lean forward with all of our might, with our cleats dug in. Right? Standing there, resisting the force of our enemy with all of our strength. It's a war. That's what it means to resist. It's about saying no when you feel that, that, that urge to dabble in your, in your desires. It's about saying no when you're encouraged to drink a, a bit too much. It's about saying no when you feel the desire right, to fill that hole in your heart by spending money you don't have on something you don't need. It's about saying no, right? When, 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 when you have this overwhelming desire to give somebody the one-finger salute when you're driving down the freeway, right? It's about saying no to those things, resisting those things. We're to submit to God and resist the devil. These things go hand in hand. And James, you know, this is practical advice. This is the practical advice that overcomes sin in our lives. But James doesn't just leave it there. He makes it even simpler and more practical. He says, he, he makes it um, even easier to, to digest and understand. You want to submit to God? You want to resist the devil so that he will flee? Well, he tells you. Here's how. He says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. There it is. That's the most down-to-earth practical advice about how to overcome the power of temptation and sin in your life. Draw near to God. He will draw near to you. You see, God himself, who can satisfy our deepest desire, it's him, right? It is, it is God himself that gives our lives meaning. It is God himself who can bring us the absolute greatest amount of joy. It is God himself who shines so bright when we're close enough to him that he causes all other things to vanish into the background. And the way that you experience that, the way you experience that goodness, the way that you experience all of the satisfaction that only God can bring is to be near him. 
You see, that's the heart of the problem. We were at one time completely cut off from God. We were separated from him by the chasm of our sin. We were dead in our sins, incapable of hearing his voice, incapable of experiencing his presence, incapable of having a relationship with him. We, like all of mankind, were hopeless, hopeless to never, ever, ever, right, fill that God-shaped hole in our hearts. But God, in his mercy, in his abundant grace, sent his son, Jesus, to the earth to live a perfect life that we couldn't live And he willingly went to the cross to die in our place so that we could no longer be dead in sin, but be born again into new life. And with that new life, we came a brand new, up close and personal relationship, a relationship with the only one who can truly satisfy every need and every desire. The only one who could make us whole. Jesus died and rose from the grave to purchase for us the ability to draw near to God. To draw near in his life-giving and soul-satisfying fellowship. And James says, draw near to God and God will draw near to you. You see, if we will turn towards God, he turns toward us. If we take a step towards God, God moves toward us. God is willing for us to be in his healing presence. You understand that? God is not aloof where he's like, stay away from me, you ragamuffins, right? God wants us to be in his presence. That's why he sent his son to die, right? He wants us to experience the joy, the hope that comes from being near him. That's why he sent his Holy Spirit to live in us. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Well, some of you might think, well, well, how then? How do I draw near to God? I mean, it's not like I can walk up to him, right? How can I draw near to God? Well, it's really simple, you know? And what you'll discover is that there's not going to be anything new here, right? You draw near to God by, number one, trusting Jesus as your Lord and Savior. Now, we bring this up over and over again in a room full of people who profess Christians because there comes a time that some people realize, man, I really didn't actually put my trust in Jesus yet. Or there's some people that come to church and they they finally realize that they need to actually take that step. But you cannot... Be close to God until you accept a free gift of eternal life. You can't come into God's presence and be near him unless you become spiritually alive again. It's not until you make Jesus the Savior and the Lord of your life that you can actually have a relationship with God. And the way that you trust Jesus as your Savior is to admit, number one, that you're a sinner incapable of saving yourself. Number two, believe that Jesus is what he claimed to be, God in the flesh, and that he died and rose again to save you. And, to conf- and, then, and then lastly, you need to confess that Jesus is Lord. Right. So number one to drawing near to God is trusting Jesus. Number two, do you draw near to God by listening to his voice? Okay? Reading his word. And I know that might sound like a broken record, but, I'm, but if you have not already in the five years I've been the pastor here have read through the Bible yet, then I'm not doing my job. You draw near to God by listening to his voice. God has spoken to you and he continues to speak to you. He has a love letter he's written to you. He has words of encouragement he wants to give to you. He wants his hope he wants to dispense into your life every single day. And it's a way that you can absolutely be near the living God. I promise you, if you will make it a point to be near him by listening and reading his word, you will move closer to God. You will feel his presence in a way that you've never felt it before. And he will absolutely move closer to you. Number three, 
You draw near to God by talking to him. Right? God has invited you into a special personal relationship with him. And he wants to hear from you. For thousands of years, people had to get up and leave and go to a place and stand in outer courts and never get only but so close to God to really offer their, their devotion to him. But Jesus said that God, that God now takes up residence in our heart. The Holy Spirit comes to live in our hearts and he wants to hear from you. I mean, think about that, okay? Some, there's some important people who don't want to hear from you, Okay? But the most important person in the entire universe wants to hear from you. In fact, he invites you to continually have a conversation with him. The Apostle Paul says, pray without ceasing and pray about everything. That is how you draw near to God, is to continually engage him in dialogue. Right? Number four, worship God. Don't let worship stop here on Sunday morning. Worship God continually. Worship him in the morning when you get ready for work. Worship him when you're in your car Right? Let people think you're absolutely out of your mind as you drive with your hands lifted up, singing to Jesus. That's okay. All right? We're not here to please people. We're here to please God. Right? Worship him in song, but worship him also in your actions. Let the way that you do your job be an act of worship. Let the way that you raise your kids be an act of worship. Let the way that you wash the car be an act of worship. Right? Number five is fellowship. Right? How much time do you really spend with your Christians, Christian friends and brothers and sisters in Christ? We gather here. We say, I love you, brother and sister. But how much time do we spend outside of here? How much time do we spend engaged in deep relationships, knowing one another? Right? You you can realize that that's how God acts in this world. He acts through people. He meets people's needs through other people. Right? Just sometimes, you know, people have come to me and said, you know what? God put it on my heart to pray for you. Exactly when I needed to hear something like that because I needed that kind of encouragement. You know, God works in amazing ways through his people. We are his instruments, so we need to be around one another, right? You want to be near in proximity to God, then be near his people, right? Now, again, did I uncover any new mysteries? No, this is stuff that we all know. But we have to remind ourselves, this is how we actually have an up-close personal relationship with God. And that is how we ultimately overcome sin, is that we spend more time with God, developing a deeper, more personal taste for Him and that relationship and presence that we have with Him, desiring that more and more to where then all the other desires of our hearts begin to pale in comparison, right? And that we then begin to use those natural desires in ways that honor God, Submit to God and resist the devil. Submit to God and resist the devil. And the devil, the promise is, he will flee from you. Join me this week and let's put him on the run. Let me pray for you. Father, we love you for your word. We love you for the promises that you make. We love you for what you've done through Jesus Christ. There are some days, Lord, I'm going I'm to admit right from the very beginning that I feel completely entitled. <laughs> I feel entitled to the very best that you have to offer me. I feel entitled that you should bless me because I'm me, right? But then I, there's days that I realize I'm the, I'm the biggest jerk I know. I'm, I'm the most selfish person I know. I realize that, like, I fall so short, but you continue to just give me grace upon grace, that you don't cast me out of your presence, that you just 
continue to offer me the same thing. That if I would draw near you, you draw near me. Like it's, it's never gets to the point where that, that, that you're going to say, okay, sure, I'm done with you. Get away from me. I'm, I'm, I'm sick and tired of your shenanigans. Lord, help us all to see that, Lord, that you're just right here, ready to have a relationship with you. And that if we will stand in your presence, that our desires for other things would begin to fade away. Not that we're going to be perfect this side of heaven. It's not going to happen. We know that, Lord. We understand that. But we will progressively be remade in the image of Christ. We'll be progressively sanctified. The closer we get to you, the more we we have a, a taste for you, the less we're going to desire the things that will draw us away from you. Father, pour out your spirit on all of our hearts today. Change us and reshape us today, Lord. Give us the deepest affection for your son, Jesus. Help us to see the beauty of your love for us. Help us to see how there's nothing in the world that's going to satisfy the way that you do. And I pray, Father God, that we would would just all be led to the foot of the cross today. That we would just lay our burdens there and then embrace the love that you have poured out on us. Father, I pray for those who are here. I pray for those who are on vacation right now and who are traveling. Give them traveling mercies and, and bring them home. But I pray right now, Lord God, that you would meet everybody where they need to be met, that you would heal those who are broken, that you would, that you would be comfort to the lonely, that you would wipe away tears, Lord, and you'd bring joy to where there is none, Lord. And I pray, Father, that you are glorified in everything we say and do and raise up a people in this church who love you so much, who are willing to go out and stand against the enemy and share the hope of Jesus Christ. We love you and we praise you. In Christ's name we pray. for listening. You've been listening to the teaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead. Check us out on the internet at fbcboron.org. And please consider partnering with us financially as we share the hope and the healing of Jesus Christ with our community and with the world.